Hey, PG fans, got a dollar? Then head over to shop.premierguitar.com and check out our massive ebook collection. We have authoritative titles on everything from DIY projects to lessons in a variety of styles and advice from legendary artists and gear builders. Plus, we release new collections every two weeks. Check it out at shop.premierguitar.com. Keys for Premier Guitar. We're hanging out just outside of Nashville with Dwayne Dennison, Tomahawk, obviously, Hi. and uh, Jesus Lizard, and spent time with Hank and the legendary Shake Shackers. So, uh, Dwayne, thank you for inviting us to your thanks home. For, thanks for inviting me. And we're going to talk gear, and it's obvious to start with the aluminum, I almost said metal, but which is true, but aluminum yeah. guitars. So, back in the day in the 90s, you played Travis Bean. Mm hmm. What started you down that path, and how did that progress to you now kind of going with the electrical guitar um, stuff? It was kind of by chance, but I had also played um, aluminum guitars or aluminum bass guitars before that with Kramers when they originally had the aluminum necks back in the late 70s, early 80s. And then Travis Bean kind of showed up. It seems like in Chicago, um, the producer we were working with, Steve Albini, had it, some yeah. of them laying around. And I just played his, and I thought, wow, that is a good sound. And I had heard them also, uh, Public Image Limited, the guitarist Keith Levine had mm -hmm. used them. Uh, and it just has an aggressive sort of edge to it that you just don't get from other guitars. So I played those for a while, um, but they did have, to me, there's always going to be certain trade-offs, like weight and balance and things like that. Um, so uh, when uh, Kevin Burkett from the Electrical Guitar Company mm -hmm. approached me about you know, making guitars for me, I said, well, I'd like to have a hand in the design because there's some things about uh, the guitars I've played in the past that I think could be improved upon. And I had actually worked at Gibson for a year yeah. back in like 2005 or something. So what we did with these, these Chessies, and that one there, I don't know if you can get it in in this shot, but um, we wanted to get, get them lighter and try to keep it at or under eight pounds. Okay. And we wanted to get the... Uh, the pitch of the neck and wanted to get it almost like a Les Paul, like three degrees of pitch, mm -hmm. and try to get the balance between the body and the neck a little more together so it doesn't neck dive yeah. the way Travis Bean sometimes can. And so we worked on that and I think we accomplished that. Did the ones that you played, the, was it the TB1000s, they had, were they, they had the Karina bodies mm -hmm. and then the aluminum necks? So did, what made you want it, I guess, for the weight relief was to go with the all-metal hollow body? Um, that, for the most part, and these, were, these are actually semi-hollow, okay. and, and so it's actually solid through the center block where the pickups are mounted, uh, and then light elsewhere. And we've actually put some ballast in some of these to kind of get the balance together between the neck and here. So we actually, it seems counterintuitive, but we added weight to get it to balance better. To almost like point up to where yeah. your hand naturally grabs yeah. the neck. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. 
And obviously, we'll, we'll get a shot of this, and maybe we'll hear you play that in a little bit. Sure. But you got the double humbuckers here. What what made you go with not only just P90s in this one, but you got a, a trio of them? Three of them. Yeah. Um, a couple of things. Number one, I've always liked the way they look. And this one is obviously a little more retro looking. I played this with uh, Hank 3 and Legendary Shack Shakers. Um, so this almost looks like something Carl Perkins would play, yeah. but a little more kind of modern. Um, with P90s, you can sometimes get some unwanted noise, right? Because they're just big, fat single coils. Yeah. But for some reason, um, I don't know if it's because it's in a metal mount, and so it kind of has additional shielding. There's virtually no noise on this, and you get the high output and the, the aggressive bite of a, of a single coil, mm -hmm. but with a little more chunk and uh, almost like a, like a double coil. And plus, with the, with the middle pickup, you can have it on, dial a little bit of it out, and now you've got these two on, for instance, in treble position. So you've still got the bite and all that, and there's no noise. Yeah. So between being able to do that and the metal frame, you've got this great sort of envelope to the tone, the bite, the sustain, the decay is nice, um, but without the, the hum that usually comes with P90s. And uh, to go back to a little more of the design, is the scale length familiar to like a Fender scale? It mm -hmm. looks longer, so it's a 25 it and a half. It is, it is. Okay. I think it's like a 25.1. I don't think it's quite 25.5. So that's even maybe closer to like a PRS. I think that's closer. Yeah. What yeah. made you go with that? Is it more just again with the balance and maybe tension of, of the The strings? tension, the tension, exactly. Um, I find that with the longer scale length, you can use heavier strings and they don't feel as heavy for some reason, right? Because, yeah. because they're on a longer scale neck, you can get burlier gauges. Though I'm not, I'm not tuning down necessarily. Sometimes I use drop D, but... You just get a sort of a girth to the tone that to me, anything less than an 11 or a 48 just won't give you. So, okay, 11 to 48s, do you have a particular particular brand that you kind of go I've with? I've been using the um, Dunlops for a long time, the 11 to 50, I believe. And for picks, uh, anything Pick, specific? Dunlop too, yeah, just okay. mediums. Just pretty, pretty generic. I like using things that if you run out, you can go almost anywhere and <laughs> yeah, get them. You know right. what I mean? I don't, I don't understand guys who are just slaves to, no, it's got to be this gauge of aluminum pick, and it's got to be this, this imported brand of strings. It's like, ah, oh, dude, that's really not gonna help you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to speak to that, going back when you guys were forming yourselves in, in Chicago in the 90s, you seem to have the recipe for what you need. Is it almost kind of doing re research and development over the last 30 years? Or because I guess you guys have a very particular sound. That's a combination yeah. of all you guys yeah. playing together. And obviously David up front, but. Sure. Um, with that particular band, God, um, we were all pretty bright. I like to think it was a very toppy band. You had a drummer who played a lot of cymbals, mm -hmm. Mac McNeely. David Sims' bass is fairly bright and toppy for a bass. He plays yeah. a Memphis jazz copy, which is fairly bright. And then myself, I was typically playing Travis Beans through high watts, which you can't get a whole lot brighter than that. Yeah. So <laughs> it was, that was part of our thing, was just this very aggressive, sort of sharp Abrasive. attack that also lent itself to being able to stop abruptly with no overhang, you know, like there's no there's no woofiness that some people find desirable. Like yeah. in certain certain I think types of metal, particularly, they like that sort of woofy sort of low thing. And I always avoided it. I wanted the 
cutoff to be as exacting as the attack and rhythmically to be sharp like that. Would you extend that to saying you, you wouldn't be uh, a fan or a person that embraces sustain like you, you, with a note decay type of thing? Um, yeah, I've talked about this before. Sustain oh, is really? overrated. <laughs> sustain is overrated in that, let's say you're playing something like we would have a song, for instance, Bloody Mary, that... Uh -huh. Then it gets to the end of the phrase, and where I want the guitar to hang over the phrase, and then the bass keeps going, the drums keep going. But I want it to fade out. Didn't quite get it. You know, it's not... It's not getting louder, it's not feeding back, it's just fading out nicely. And you can, you can obviously do that yourself with your knobs and whatnot, but to me it just seems more natural for it to have the sound that allows it to do that. And there are certain types of pickups and string and amp combinations where you hit, you know, you hit those notes and it just keeps getting louder and, and you have to, you're fighting it. And I always, that bothered me and it was, that was part of how the songs were written, that yeah. guitar parts would hang hang in the air, sort of overlap a new section of the song, and then decay. And so I, I kind of w would deliberately play with the pickups and play with the amp until I could get that. Well, that is one thing I, I really, truly enjoy, and I just saw you guys twice this year at Riot Fest, and again, just in Nashville not too long ago, is I think it led, the way you ex used Mary as an example is with David out front and the way you guys play cohes cohesively as a band, I, I guess the best way I can describe it is like there's tension between the music and the, how the notes do decay or fade and then just kind of David lurking on stage yeah. and eventually in the crowd. But yeah, it, th there's tension that is created through the way that you guys have designed your sound. Well, thanks. Yeah, that's to me what a big part of rock and roll, especially the more modern rock and roll is. It's tension and release. It's this sort of like the suspense and then something big happens yeah. or not, or you sort of twist it even more. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm with you on that. Well, I'm glad that we agree on something, Dwayne. <laughs> <laughs> what about pickups? Do you know specifically what the models of the P90s is? There something Kevin does himself? These are his. These okay. are his. And um, man, I think they're they're my favorite P90s ever. Um, they're very bright. They're very bright and sharp. Yet they still have some body to them, some chunk chunkiness to them. Um, I've played others that seemed a bit too midi, you know, mm -hmm. and. And I never liked the P100s or other sort of like kind of noiseless ones. But these are, are virtually silent and I've, I've just been very happy with them. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's probably others out there by now because it seems like more and more people are coming back to P90s. Yeah, they come back in favor. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it is. I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to pick up this one and yeah. maybe can kind of maybe... Do we want to plug it in? Yeah, or? yeah, let's hear this bad boy. Okay. Kind of hear the differences. Yeah. Now, is this the first one you got from Kevin or is, was the yellow one? That was, and that's actually the Mach 2 version. The okay. original one I got from Kevin had some sort of cat's eye F holes. That's to right. It, right? And um, I remember that. Yeah. I sent it back to have some work done on it, and he kept it. He's like, Do you mind if I keep this? This is like the one that kind of got us going, got his company going. Yeah. yeah, of course. And he made me another one, which is this one. So. Uh, it's funny as you get kind of going here, how the guitars have like shaped a certain sound of music. Like when we were talking before we started rolling the Melvins, uh, yeah. see Steve with shellac, like there's a certain type of music that these guitars lend themselves to. And I'm starting to see it sort of, it's starting to diversify a little bit. Um, 
I see a lot of guys who play really heavy, loud, heavy, like almost you know different genres of metal who are going more and more to the aluminum thing. Yeah. Um, before that, it seemed to be sort of an alternative thing. Like people, basically, if you liked Public Image, and you liked Shellac or Big Black or one of Steve's groups or the Jesus Lizard, it kind of lent itself to that way of thinking. And mm -hmm. I saw guys, it seemed like people who liked that kind of music would buy those guitars. Yeah. But it's spreading out. Now you're seeing guys who are into heavy music, and you're even seeing pop things. Um, Kevin, the guy, Kevin Burkett, who makes these, um, said he had made some, some of these for um, Katy Perry's guitar players. Oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's getting around. <laughs> So, is there anything else besides the sentimental fact and the cat's eyes being removed that uh, have changed in the, the second iteration? No, uh -uh. no, okay. it's pretty much the same. Um, the same scale length, three degrees of pitch. Uh, is that something you've always known to really find that works for you, or is it something you picked up while working at Gibson? It, exactly. Oh, really? Um, okay. When I was working there, it seems like uh, other aluminum ones and fenders, there's almost no, there's no pitch to mm -hmm. them at all. They're very flat. And I, when I was younger, I couldn't put my finger on what it was that made them feel the way they did and made me play, it forced me to play differently and I wasn't sure I liked it. And then when I worked at Gibson and I set up a lot of Les Pauls, yeah. <laughs> um, I noticed that there was almost never intonation problems. I thought, I, it, I really came to admire the Les Paul design in mm -hmm. that setting them up, there was, it was rare when you ever had a problem with intonation or anything with those. And part of it, I was convinced, was it's more like a traditional stringed instrument where you've got that degree of pitch. So when you hold it up and look at it like that, yeah. the body is flat and then the strings come down at an angle like a traditional stringed instrument, mm -hmm. like a violin, like a cello or whatever. Um, so I thought, well, if we could do that with an aluminum guitar, maybe that would be just the ticket. And I think. I think I was right. Um, it also feels right too. You've just you, you don't think of three degrees as being much, but when you're driving and it's a three degree downhill yeah. grade, that's significant, yeah. right? You notice it. Well, I think the same thing goes with this. And then when you're playing, your arm and wrist and shoulder, you feel it after a while, and you feel it just feels more natural and it and just physically comfortable to play. Mm -hmm. And as I've gotten older, all those little things make a difference. Yeah, <laughs> they all add up. Yeah. And uh, to finish out kind of the attributes on this one, uh, same design, Kevin designed uh, pickups, mm -hmm. humbuckers? No, these aren't actually, um, Kevin, he makes good humbuckers, don't, you know, make don't no mistake, yeah. but these are burst buckers. Oh, okay. These are Gibson Steel? burst buckers. Last no. day of work, put them no. in the pocket? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, <laughs> no, um, we, we put these in. I just think those are great humbuckers. They're they really are. Yeah. And, and putting them, housing them in a metal frame, I think does two things. It folk, well, maybe just one thing. It focuses the tone a little more. It brings out more of a bite to the attack and just focuses, sharpens that tone. It's almost like you're looking at it now through a different, through a lens and tweaking it just a little more. Um, what we what people like of course about humbuckers you've got a thick sort of chunkiness but sometimes it can sound muddy or op or unusually opaque in a way that to me i don't like and so somehow just having that little bit of metallic 
sheen to it just yeah. brings out, right? It brings out a little extra. Um, not that that's necessarily demonstrating it to its best, but yeah. you know what I mean. Get in-depth coverage of your favorite artists and the coolest new gear delivered to your home every month. Visit shop.premierguitar.com to sign up for a print subscription to Premier Guitar so you can take the best guitar content on earth with you anywhere. No Wi-Fi required. And uh, while we were talking about amps, you mentioned that you played high watt and I've seen it with Marshalls back in the day. Mm -hmm. But as we can see here, you have Blackstar, which I've seen you play for a couple years now. How did you get to Blackstar? and uh, kind of end up there? Um, they just caught me at a time when I was kind of transitioning. And yeah, I played high watt and I played Marshall. Were and those, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, were they 100 watts? Yeah, okay. yeah, those were, and those were beefy. Yeah. And, um, and back in the day, nobody really wanted high watts. When I started playing them, for instance, I bought a 100 watt DR-103, like a, I think about an 1981 in great condition. The whole thing, head and four by 12 with fanes, original cabinet for $500, well, yeah. the whole thing. And then I bought a backup head. I went, drove up to Milwaukee and bought a head for $250. So for under $1,000, I had two heads and a 4x12. And they're great amps, um, very bright, a little clean. You really have to crank them to make them sing. They're very, very heavy. Um, and as I've gotten older, and I've had numerous injuries. I've had pinched nerves in my back. I've had hernias. I've had whatever that even though we often have a road crew to move stuff for us, there's going to be times, as I'm sure you know and anybody who listens to this knows, that sooner or later you're going to have to move that stuff by yourself. Yeah. And, and um, I just couldn't face it anymore. I just couldn't do it. So I kind of downsized. And then they caught me and they said, hey, you want to try our stuff? And I said, okay. And they sent, they sent one. They sent those. And I played it. And I was like, yeah, this sounds really good. And I kind of like having two... Um, combos, you've got this modular thing, obviously if one goes down, the other's still running. Mm -hmm. You can do weird stereo things if you want or not. You can, I've experimented with different speakers on one and... Um, do you know, recall which ones you kind of played around with? What I did. You I tried with? the Celestian, the new, um, they're like a lightweight vintage ones and it's supposed to be like the vintage creambacks, the okay. Neo Creamback. Have uh, you heard of those? Neo, yeah, with the Neo the magnets. Neo. Yes, and they're super lightweight. Um, I wasn't crazy about the sound. Mm. I thought that the top really sounded smooth and refined. The mids were okay, and they, the lows did not deliver. For me, that's just me. Sorry, Celestian, the other stuff is good, but yeah. I, I took them out, and I put, I think, whatever came back, whatever came in these, the 7080s, which sounded good to yeah. me. They still sound good. Here's a left, left turn for you. Okay. When you're doing that type of thing, are you listening in the room, or are you recording and then playing back in headphones to, to hear what because I don't, I'd, I'd be, right. be curious to know how, what you feel the most difference. Where you're like, oh, okay, I can hear the difference between what was just in there. Just in the room. Okay. Just strictly. And then A being, because I have the same Ah, amp. there you go. And so I would put them, you know, I put one with the new speakers and left the originals in. And I would literally sit in front of it. And I had someone with me, too, listening. And I'm like, are you hearing what I'm hearing? Yeah. Like, yeah. Kind of going back and forth. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I'm sure this is different because we're sitting in your 
your house here, but typically how would you set up a, a amp given, you know, a generic generic room? I know each room's different and it needs its own qualities, but typically how do you EQ an amp? Um, or is it all different? No, I, I, I can get the same sound from almost any amp. It, it makes me laugh sometimes. I used to have a full-on practice space on the edge of town, and I had everything in it. Mm -hmm. um, I had my Marshalls and high watts and everything. And whenever I would get something new, I would tweak it and dial it in until I thought it sounded good, until it sounded the way I want it to sound. And then I would go back to the old amp and play, and it, it sounded like a different version of what I just dialed in. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's a certain sound I seem to always go for which is like this, where I want the top to be bright and sharp and have a certain sizzle to it, but I want there to be some low-end girth. So almost the trebles and bass, if you can see, it's almost always like seven, and mm. then cut the mids out, not totally scooped, but cut that back to, say, four. So bass, treble, seven, mids on four, and then the drive about half to two-thirds of the way up. And then with um, Black Stars, you've got that ISF feature, which yeah. kind of lets you straddle between, you know, a more English sound and the yeah, U.S. American. sound. And, and I kind of ride the middle on that. <laughs> yeah, you know? get a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, and that's it, really. It's nothing. And these Fender Supersonics, it's the same thing. You can see there, I've got sevens all the way across, except yeah. for the middle. So I kind of... back to four. Yeah. And... So I'm, I'm, I've seen you before, and it was always the TC G-Force that you mm -hmm. played, and now we're looking at Helix to kind of transition to effects. Yeah. Which I guess before that I should start back in the day, and I got the rig diagrams and other publications that sure. probably shouldn't name drop. Uh, you know, the, the back page, and you had no effects pedals, and we just got done talking at least what they drew right. up. Yeah. And we just got done talking last year, Perry and I, uh, with Brian Baker from Bad Religion, and part of obviously what they did was because they're punk rock, right. but also because they had so many people come on stage, and then you have David and to with. And with David, yeah. So you couldn't do it. You, you couldn't have pedals because you, something would either, they said either get stolen or stepped on. Yeah, or, or unplugged, or, yeah. or you know, you've got your singer who's the human cannonball, and he's, getting, <laughs> and he's getting tangled up in everything and pulling everything apart. So is that so, kind of the method behind the madness, uh, along with probably having a little more of a straight-ahead approach? There was, there was a, that and a certain aesthetic that you wanted it to be as stripped down and straightforward as possible, that you were not relying on what, gimmick, gimmickry or any, yeah. anything like that. But over time, then, but then after a few years of that, you say, well, I kind of like having different effects, and I kind of like having subtle things. So I started, like probably a lot of people, with the TC, they had that, uh, what was it? The pitch modulator chorus flange pedal all mm -hmm. in one. You remember those? Yeah, yeah. And I had one of those for a while, and I used to just keep it on the amp. And I would just go over there at the t whatever start of what song hit it and <laughs> leave it on and not have it on the floor. Yeah. And then over time, that kind of changed. And then the old, um, the 2290, which was kind of a, what, a chorus pit pitch yep. modulator delay thing. And then that went away, and I would also keep that on the amp. And I had the floor unit, too. I would eventually say, David, please stay away from this side. Just do whatever you want anywhere else, but stay away from my side. And yeah. by then, we're playing bigger places where there was actually security. So people weren't getting on the stage quite as much. Yeah. And I would usually put it right under the monitor so it had a little protection. Um, and then I went to the G-Force and then used a um, MIDI controller for that. And it was kind of the same thing. I always kept backups and I'd put it next to the monitor, so there was a little bit of protection. And the G-Force, man, I used one of those for at least 10 years, and that's 
that's like, you know, what eons, in, yeah. right? As far yeah, as effects, to use the same thing, thing for 10 years. And then... Um, Did you have to replace things or get it like the hardware service? Almost never. Really? Almost never. I, man, TC stuff, I will say, I almost never had to have any work done on any of it. And we toured a lot. Yeah. I mean, we, hundreds of shows a year. I mean, we played in that 10-year period, we played about 1,000 shows, mm -hmm. plus recording sessions, plus rehearsals, plus everything else. Um, no, that stuff held up. So, um, a friend of mine, Bill Kelleher from Mastodon, recommended these. He goes, dude, you got to try it. I said, I'm a TC guy. He's like, I was a TC guy. I probably shouldn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Um, and I tried it, and I really liked it. And you can get, you can tweak the sounds, and you can arrange your things in a bank that suits you. I'm very simple yeah. when it comes to effects. And all other guys will say, oh, do you use the snapshot, snapshot feature? Do you use it? I'm like, no, no, <laughs> no. I've got some very basic. Yeah, do you want to show yeah. some of the basic colors you got? Yeah. So I have a generic, what I, what I would call my rhythm one. Which is basically just a little a touch of reverb and a touch of EQ mm -hmm. to it. There's really, it's straight, fairly dry. <clears throat> rhythm guitar two, which for me is a very subtle chorus. Some people find chorus to sound dated or, or whatever, or the, some people will say, even, even Andy Summers, who to me practically invented yeah. the chorus, is like, oh, it sounds old-fashioned. Like, I don't know. It, if, you, um, if you use it in the right way, it just kind of adds texture and a slight movement to chords. And especially if you're playing something where you're chugging around, you don't have time to hear it swirl. It just yeah. kind of gives it a little more of a There's sort like of a thickness to it. Yeah, it, 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 it isn't that what a chorus originally was. It was like an, a second guitar sort of out of sync with the original, and mm -hmm. that's what gives it that sound. And then I've got a rhythm three, which is just like, it's like rhythm one, only louder. So if you've got a beefy chorus coming yeah. up, you want to throw it down, there it is. Reverb, a very basic reverb. You can't play reggae without it, can you? <laughs> Is this kind of basically set up from the last short run you guys did mm -hmm. with Jesus Lips? So mm -hmm. this is a, what you would be using yeah. those nights. Yeah, um, This one I'm calling Lead One. Lead One, I really like the very basic effects, and I, I really like rockabilly guitar. Yeah. And I got to indulge myself a little bit in that style, playing with uh, Hank Three, and then later with Legendary Shack Shakers. Yeah. And, and I find that those effects are the ones I even use for the Jesus Lizard still. And it, and no one seems to mind. And so this one, um, it's like a, a call it a slapback. Um, and it just, I, I just, it, to me, a slapback is so evocative, especially if you're using it for something that it's not necessarily meant for. For instance, we had a song, and when it when it goes to this high part. Where it was me doing like a bad Chet Atkins Im imitation, yeah. where there's two different parts going on, very simple. It just makes them jump out in a way that they wouldn't if it was... It's just not the same. I like so, how you subtly say it's just a song when anyone that knows Jesus Lizard knows those riffs. So sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then lead two, which is more of a... a kind of a, a little bit of a boost in volume and with a slight delay to it with a little bit of a tail. 
So it's very subtle. It's, it's um, ducked. Okay, so while you're playing, if you're playing something busy, you're just going to hear the reverb. You're not going to, it doesn't come out obviously until you stop. Mm. And so that's kind of cool. And then you hear it on the yeah. end. So it kind of, usually most of the bands I've played in, I'm usually the only guitar player. So anything that kind of fills the sound a little more, I think is good. Do right? you, is that a, a thing you do on purpose not to, to, to say that you're, you know, it's a Dwayne only club, but right. is, is that kind of by design for you? Don't, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah sure. <laughs> um, you mean to be the only guitar player or to yeah, use yeah. that sound? No. Um, no, but I have to say, most of the bands where I've played with other guitar players, I just don't like it as much. <laughs> I just don't. Um, because usually, if the other guy is kind of strumming and rhythm guitar and playing fairly standard chord shapes and things. Yeah. And so if you try to do something on top of it, you end up just doing a different inversion of the same chord. Yeah. Or if you try to do something tricky, a lot of times it doesn't sound right. And it's usually a singer who's strumming away. I'm, you know, by saying this, I'm basically never going to get a, a gig as a, just a side man, you know. I, but then again, I don't usually get those anyway. Nobody wants me You around. get a day job anyways, yeah. Dwayne. <laughs> um, so yeah, it does that. And then this one's, then this lead three is a bit more extreme. It's got some drive, and it's got kind of a reverse sort of tail to it. And I just use it once in a while for a couple of... You know, if you, it's the kind of sound to me you would use it once or maybe twice over the course of a set, right? But it gets the listener's attention. Absolutely, it jumps out, especially, you know, if you, if you don't typically do that kind of thing and if you don't have, say, a keyboard player playing other crazy stuff, mm -hmm. if you throw in just a little bit of that, I think it... it, it Is there uh, a specific spot in, in the Jesus Lizard set? like in the last four or five shows you played at the end of the year where, where that might have got included? Or is yeah. it specific? Or is yes. Um, it was usually I would throw it in. There's a song we had called Seven Versus Eight that had kind of a uh, freak out you know, thing at the end that mm -hmm. usually went into a drum break and all this. And, um, and it would, everyone would just kind of cut loose and then we'd... And I would indulge myself and do, do almost these contrapuntal things. Go and I didn't. I didn't have to work so hard. Yeah. You could just kind of let it go and let it go, and it's like I can relax for a minute. You know, just let it go. And then I don't know why I arranged the so, but then the last thing, of course, is just your basic tremolo. We have a new song. Sometimes the riffs are built around it. Um, there's a new, we're actually working on a new Tomahawk album, and I have a song tentatively called High Noon and going for kind of a Western sort of dry. It's high noon, so you've got this sort of sound that could only happen with a tremolo when we were like.
Well, you've got you've got Gary Cooper, yeah. and John Wayne walking down the middle of the street, and then David Bowie shows up. I was say like very Dwayne Eddy with a black hat type of feel. Right, but Dark. then right, and then David Bowie shows up, and then it changed, okay. it turns into something else. <laughs> Everything's cool. <laughs> And I mean, we pretty much covered the only thing. So I know there's, there's spots uh, in, in your guys' catalog, specifically mm -hmm. to Jesus Lizard, mm -hmm. is uh, slides. Is there anything that you typically use or that you need for a slide um, in terms of uh, material? No, um, but it's funny. I almost always use a different tuning for slide. I, I, I don't think there's any song where I use a standard tuning. Um, for instance, you can just do... <laughs> Drop D is good for getting those. Um, but the one I really like is um, kind of a minor in the middle. Now, what song would this be for? Actually, I didn't use the minor in the middle. I used drop G. Uh, what was it? Not thumper. Um, thumb screws. Yeah. Slightly out of tune, but. Um, and then you can also. When you're in that, go to a minor, lower your G, your B to B flat. And I've done this with Tomahawk, actually. Um, and then you've got this nice minor chord in the middle. like that it seems like if you're going to change your tuning that's the time to do it yeah with the slide mm -hmm. and it, it seems to be good news i didn't know that so i mean that's news to myself about the tomahawk and not to put you on the spot sure. but is there anything in the i know that you guys have been playing a lot more shows or at least to my awareness uh for the jesus lizard mm -hmm. was it kind of a just festival tour once a year type of thing are you guys looking to do a new record ever um never say never never say never because we never to be honest, I, I didn't think any of us ever thought that we would, after we had originally broke up in 1999, we all kind of went our separate ways and we moved, we had all been in Chicago and then I ended up here and David Sims is in New York and David Yao is in LA and Mac, our drummer, kind of stayed up there. Um, none of us ever thought that we would play together again. We just did, we figured that part of our lives is over now, so let's all move on. And then we started getting, you know, these offers to do things. So as far as um, we haven't, we never sat down and said, okay, now we should do another record. Yeah. But we're just the kind of people who always come up with new stuff anyway. And so, yeah. you know, we get together to rehearse and work on stuff to go play shows. It's just inevitable that somebody starts noodling on something and you say, what's that? And you say, oh, it's just this new thing. Check it out. Like. Play it again, let's see it. Oh, you know, I got a part that I think would sound good over that. And that's kind of how the songs evolve. And so um, it might happen. 
So you never know. Yeah. And lastly, I'd be remiss as a, as a music fan to acknowledge that you have a, a tendency to work with really, I don't want to say flamboyant, but very extreme lead singers sure. in, in a way that interact with the guitar in the band. You know, obviously David gets his reputation for crowd, but even just his vocal delivery that is so yeah. dynamic. And then obviously Mike, who does everything from video games to, you know, operas. So how do you get drawn to those characters and how do you feel that helps invigorate, you know, guitar playing um, in, in the band? I, I, I just feel like that's kind of how it's worked out for me, even going back to the 80s when I lived in Austin, Texas, I was in a band Cargo Cult that put an album up and our singer was a guy named Biscuit who was a flamboyant uh, guy from the band called The Big Boys, one of the early punk rock bands and he was openly flamboyant in a time when people weren't. Yeah. And so there's always been that and then David Yao, Mike Patton, Hank, Hank Williams III is, yeah. is not your average guy that you see walking down the street. Yeah. J.D. Wilkes from the legendary Shack Shakers. Um, I think part of it is just that's what I like when I see bands and when I see rock bands or whether it's a punk rock band or hard rock or metal, whatever, I expect the singer to be over the top in some ways, at least, or be unique, have a yeah. personality. And part of it is just, it fills the part of, to me, my personality that isn't necessarily there. I'm, I've always been a fairly serious musician. You know, I take it seriously, I practice, I study. You know, I, I like to laugh and hang out and do stupid stuff too, just like anyone, but I take the music seriously and I just know that if you have a band where everyone is like that, it's not necessarily going to be entertaining. Yeah. And think, uh, how many times have you seen bands where it just seemed too serious, where everyone, yeah, they're all really good, they're all really serious, but I want something crazy to happen. I want someone to fall down. I want something to break. Yeah. I want, like I'll, I'll go to a rock show and I'll think, that singer didn't scream once. What kind of show is it? What, what kind of rock show is it? <laughs> he didn't scream once yeah. in the whole set. Like, mm, no. Um, <laughs> even when they're great singers, and I admire people who are great singers too, but this is different. This, and so for me, for a rock band, let's put it this way. If I were an actor, I think I would be a very good supporting actor. But I don't see myself as a leading man. Yeah. And I know this. That's a good and, way to put it. You know, and, and um, I think a lot of guys make that mistake. And, you know, there's only, so, there's only one Jeff Beck in the world who can get up on that stage and just with his guitar command your attention and keep it over the course of an evening, over yeah. the course of a career. Yeah. Other guys try to do it and they fail. Um, there's only a handful of people who can do it. And, you know, I think, oh, I play pretty good. I write pretty well, all that. But, I'm not necessarily the one that thousands of people are going to throw money down to go see every night. And that's the difference. And so I, I've always thought that I need to be in bands with those kind of guys. Have you always had that awareness? Because yes. as a guitar player, yes. some guys lack that. Uh, always. Yeah. Um, I don't think I ever maybe verbalized it quite so uh, uh, eloquently. Yeah. But in the early days, I just, that's the kind of bands I liked. And I knew that I'm not that guy, so let's find someone who is. And that's just kind of how it's worked out. Well, that's a good way to end this interview, Dwayne. I appreciate you again opening the home to me and Perry. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for, yeah. This is Chris it. Keys for Premier Guitar.